Hi and welcome to this week's Three Legs, Four Wheels F1 podcast. It's Paul here with... Chris, Lee and our special guest... Uh, Craig Scarborough, that's me. Yeah. <laughs> Craig Scarborough, ladies and gentlemen. I've got to introduce myself now. <laughs> How are you doing? You all right, Craig? Uh, yeah, very good, thank you very much. Um, yeah, I really enjoy the season and... Um, Seems a shame we've only got a couple of races left now, doesn't it? It's been quite a cracking season, all we know. It's flown by. I can't believe how quickly it's gone. Yeah, it doesn't seem doesn't seem like ten minutes ago we were falling asleep watching the French Grand Prix. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Still want the sprinklers. No, 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 no. Tells you what kind of season it's been, though, doesn't it? If like we're still talking about the one boring race of the season, Mm. you know, everything's been well. Before we started recording, we spoke about hydrogen bombs, didn't we? Yeah. I think I might have thought how we can fix that circuit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, just completely. I think, I think the population of Nice may have a bit of an issue with that. Just but, a small uh, one. Just a small one. Just about circuit size. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Bernie would love you forever, Lee. He could be there, don't mind. <laughs> it's his circuit. He'd probably want to see it get blown up. Maybe. Yeah, he's probably got it insured, so I wouldn't worry too much. <laughs> In fact, if it's that well insured, he'd probably encourage it. Yeah. We are not encouraging bombing anything. No. no. Just, no in, never. just in case anyone's listening. No, exactly. Um, so, Craig, the last time we had you on the podcast, we were talking about um, post-summer break upgrades and we were all yes. we were all really excited because Ferrari had brought this upgrade and they were expecting uh, to to be a lot closer in the second half of the season and they kind of blew everyone away for the first few races after the summer break and then they didn't no nope. what happened this is probably one of the most <laughs> probably the most difficult question you can ask me other than what why are Williams where they are um, <laughs> I think Ferrari, they've certainly turned that car around. So we know that the car at the beginning of the season was running very low downforce to improve the drag in order to get high top speeds. And that's worked kind of well for them, but we knew their slow corner performance was really kind of lacking. Um, What they've managed to do over um, the summer was to try and turn... Uh, the, that picture around a little bit so we know they've got much better slow corner performance now we know they've got much more downforce now and as you know everyone's been pointing out there's been no lack of power from that Ferrari particularly in its qualifying mode doesn't seem to show up quite so well in the races um, so I think they've done a lot right with that car with the upgrades that they did over the summer and in the early part of the sort of the, the post-summer season um I think where Ferrari are lacking really is in their racecraft, which, um, you know, is is lacking from um, partly from a driver perspective, but also from a team strategy perspective and a whole weekend sort of strategy perspective as well. And they're not really making the most of the the car that they've got. Um, And then when you then compare that to Mercedes, who, you know, you could argue haven't had the best car all year. Um, I mean, the, the, the margin between how good the Ferrari is and how good the Mercedes is as a whole is, you know, very finely balanced. But Mercedes have just been operating at a much higher level through the weekend. So, you know, they've been prepared to give up the qualifying, um, but their race tyre management has been so much better, and they've been so much better at making the calls through the race. Um, and I think that's really where Ferrari are being shown up. I don't think it's necessarily in the performance of their chassis. Um um, maybe partly in the use of the tyres during the race and you know where they decide to 
use the performance of the car. Um, but really, they're just being being outraced and outthought by by Mercedes on, on the Sundays. It seems to me. Interesting, interesting point there. And there was a lot of talk last weekend in Mexico about the um, the fuel flow, uh, with yes. it being questioned. Is something in particular legal or not? And all of a sudden, it said the the decision came from on high that no, this wouldn't be legal if anyone used it. And then Ferrari suddenly lose time. Were they worried about getting found out? Perhaps. Again, the the answer is nobody knows. Um, apart from Ferrari, and maybe someone that is now at Red Bull that has some information on Ferrari. I think you can't take too much from the one race that we've just had in um, Austin. Um, obviously, it was a bit of a mixed-up weekend with the temperatures, with the, with the um, wind, with, with some rain and the wind. Um, and it certainly looks like Ferrari were running a lot more downforce in order to get that car working and to particularly get its tyres working because the Ferrari likes hot conditions to get the tyres going, doesn't like it being nearly zero degrees. Um <laughs> So Ferrari would have cranked on more wing than they perhaps would have wanted to run at a, a hot Austin. And that has affected their straight line speed. Now, I don't know when that um, technical directive that was issued on Red Bull's request came into force, but I don't think it would have had an impact necessarily on Ferrari at the first race they'd have turned up to. So I think we can read a bit too much into Ferrari's lack of straight line speed and obviously losing the, the race despite pole position um, uh, at Austin because of, you know, all these other factors. Um, so we'll need to see how that pans out for the uh, balance of the season. But what Red Bull have suggested is really just another one of these things that everyone's been stabbing at Ferrari for the past few years. It's like the twin batteries that we had this oil-based intercooler, which was the yeah. big guess um, just a few weeks ago, which you know is utterly nonsensical. Um, so you know Ferrari are doing something very clever with the car. Whether it's legal or not, it's very hard to say. But what it seems to be the suggestion now is, is that they're tricking the fuel flow meter that sits in the fuel tank, which ensures that you're only delivering um, fuel at this hundred. I think it's 105 kilograms, 110 kilograms per hour, um, as a kind of snap figure. That's, and that's, it, that's it, the rate, isn't it? It's not the, the actual fuel that's on board. That's the rate of the fuel flowing. That's that, it, yeah. yeah, so it's that, that although we call it as, um, as a per hour figure, it's the instantaneous equivalent of that, which yeah. they measure at um, 22 hertz, I think, I seem to remember the figure is. Um, so you're getting lots of people pointing ideas at Ferrari, but none of them seem to be backed up by either fear statements or what we're seeing on the track. So it's the same pretty much as we, we had last year. And I think everyone likes to suggest that as soon as Ferrari's got a powerful engine, it's cheating. And then you've got people like Mercedes going, oh, it's terrible. We're going to need more power to keep going. <laughs> but, you know, for since 2014, Mercedes have had, you know, clearly more power. They, they, they boasted about their party mode, which was the oil-burning setup they had for qualifying. Yeah. And it, it, it just it kind of feels a bit of double standards, but people will point the finger at Ferrari and call them cheats, and uh, the, there wasn't the same level of rigour at um, other uh, engine manufacturers in the sport. But um, it's um, it, I think we'll need to see what happens both this weekend and, and Abu Dhabi, if indeed, you know, there is something to be, 
to be seen. And, you know, from Ferrari now, they've lost the championships. Red Bull have a, a degree of challenge to them, haven't they? But, you know, Ferrari could actually just, you know, switch some stuff off and uh, let this go and bring back whatever they had in their back pocket in the engine this year for next year and ca- catch everybody out again. So, um, yeah, a little bit too early to say, but, you know, there's, there's lots of accusations and very little sort of factual um stuff put forwards around all this yeah case of uh throwing enough mud and hoping something sticks um it, exactly you know everyone everyone has a theory and um you know you can look at the forums and you can even look at the mainstream motorsport media you know they were they were backing up this idea of an oil called intercooler which you know from a, a thermal perspective just doesn't make any sense and then actually then having it somehow leak the oil into the high pressure air inside it just again just doesn't sound like a feasible way of doing things when there are much easier mechanisms to actually get oil into the engine if indeed that's what you know they were they were doing to get this boost of power yeah do you think the idea that red bull and ferrari uh, rubber and ferrari are coming towards mercedes is a bit of a false dawn because all year i've sort of thought when people have been like praising ferrari in particular you've had a mercedes which has had to like almost take a hacksaw to the car at times to get the, to get more cooling into the engine. Mm-hmm. Is it a case that Mercedes have built a bad car and it's not the fact that the other teams have caught up? And when you, when you do something wrong, I think you learn more than you do when you do something right. So next year, Mercedes will probably build a normal Mercedes car and then be back to where they were. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's 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 nuggets and everything you say there, which is true. I mean, I don't think this is a Mercedes that's had the level of dominance um, as it's had for the you know the past handful of seasons. Uh, we saw that during testing, um, particularly in the second week of testing, when they did have the updated bodywork, but the car just just looked a handful. And in those first races, you know, Ferrari kind of threw those races mm-hmm. away. Um, at a point when I think Mercedes were, were really struggling to understand the car that they had and how to work with the tyres. Um, uh, Ferrari have definitely made a step, and I think as we kind of got into that summer break period, I think Red Bull kind of got into their stride as well. Honda had started to deliver the power, and Red Bull were then starting to back that up with a chassis that could make the most of it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Mercedes taken a step back, Ferrari and Red Bull have taken a step forwards and they've got pretty close to each other. Um, and it really is, as I was kind of speaking about earlier, it's a case of who's really then grabbing the advantage. And it's been very much um, Mercedes in the races and Red Bull who have you know, operated races really efficiently because they know they can't qualify as well because they just don't have that power during qualifying. So, it's, it's always tricky, and I think Ferrari have kind of given us a bit of a full storm because we had that testing performance that we was all so impressed with. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, other aspects of their car are good. But they tend to be very good on a Saturday and not necessarily on a Sunday. And, you know, I mean, lots of people still love qualifying, and it's a great spectacle. But in terms of really detecting what is a really good car, it's not necessarily... Um, you know, the most important part of the weekend is, you know, very few races this year have been won from pole position. Um, and, you know, I think that, that Ferrari really, really is, you know, it's what it's lacking. It's lacking on a Sunday rather than what it lacks on a Saturday. Uh, so it's very hard to judge the cars uh, in isolation. And this year, you know, we've had lots of very 
complicated weekends with you know windy weekends as you said in austin temperature variations weekends where it's been wet through practice drying out for the race day it's very hard to predict what these pirelli tires are doing as much of the midfield will love to tell us about at length um so it's been a really tricky year and yeah i mean where we go for next year is very hard to predict because i think red bull will be a lot bolder next year now they know that they've got a power unit that is you know within you know percents of the uh, ferrari and the mercedes ferrari have they got something in their back pocket with the engine we don't know i think mercedes with their early season success also turned off the development of their car quite a bit this year yeah i totally which, agree which doesn't bode very well for the, the rivalries for next season um but maybe has brought us a slightly more exciting um second half of the season than perhaps we uh we deserved if they had been really fully on it i think um you know that maybe would have been a, a bit more mercedes dominance so you know it's all very hard to predict um but yeah certainly next year you know mercedes still have got that kind of winning advantage but um Clearly, Red Bull and um, Ferrari haven't been standing still. If they can make another step over the winter like they've done this year, hopefully we can have a competitive year next season before, obviously, everything goes up for grabs in 2021. I was just going to say, I take it that as far as next year goes, every team's going to want to come with... I mean, every team obviously wants to come with the best car they can do. But knowing Mm. that development is probably going to be halted much quicker next year than it usually is through a season, I'd have thought. So that that must be on their minds, you know, going into Australia. Yeah, I mean, it's it's going to be interesting because we've got very few rule changes for next season, um, which means that lots of teams will want to jump on the bandwagons that have been favoured by the leading teams and the, you know, the, the midfield teams that found success with different suspension geometry and you know different aero setups, wheelbase lengths and stuff like that. You know, someone could want to spend a lot of money trying to put right what's been wrong in their chassis. And with that, you would start to look, you know, particularly towards the back of the grid. Um, you know, I think Williams would be a team that would want to put a lot of effort into the 2020 car. Um Obviously, the top three teams will put huge effort into the 2020 cars because they know there's another championship for grabs. The balance of the midfield, you would have to say, how much would they want to rest on the laurels that they've gained in 2019 and think, we're going to invest a bit less money and a bit less um, effort into the 2020 car because we really need to be getting the program going on the 2021 car. And as much as the regulations do allow free development for 2021, you know, at the end of the day, these people, and I think was it Horner was saying it's going to be the most expensive year ever yeah, in Formula. Yeah. Well, that's only if you've got an unlimited amount of money to draw upon. <laughs> <laughs> the midfield, you know, most of them won't even reach the the value of the the budget cap in 2021 anyway. So they've not got a bottomless pit. So they still need to decide where they spend their money, and they really should be looking at the longer term projects for 2021 than throwing huge amounts of cash and resources at 2020 um you know everyone will have their own balance in between how that works out but um yeah i mean certainly if i was um you know technical director of a midfield team i would certainly be erring on the side of 2021 more than i would on uh, 2020 so does that mean we could be going into into the season with a reasonable reasonably big gap then between the midfield cars and the top three that's going to get like substantial before the end of the year 
Um, I think probably when we reach when we hit Melbourne, I think it would will have closed up a bit because fixed regulations and teams doing a bit of catch up tends to tighten the gap in the field. I think what you'll find is as the season progresses, certainly the top three teams and the teams with a lot of resources in the midfield and um you know, with teams like that, you're probably thinking McLaren have probably got you know the budget and the size of team to kind of really throw money at this. Potentially Renault have, but you know we've got lots of other issues ongoing with Renault. It seems. Yeah. If you rest this week, um, so you know there could be an increasing gap, and certainly anyone that's come out with a bit of a lemon of a car or is right at the back may very quickly um, decide, you know, pre-summer to. Um, really wholly focus on the 2021 car and i think that for a lot of teams i still think that would be a really sensible way of doing things because you know it's it is sacrificing a season but if you can make a jump quickly in 2021 as we saw whenever we've had these other big regulation changes you can make a big jump very quickly um with a big change in regulations it's got to be something williams are thinking of because if they're already so far behind now and the regulations say staying the same. They've got they've got a huge gap to make up before they make the gap up. That's going to be there next year. Mm, yeah, yeah. And again, yeah, with with the teams that are struggling, you need. I think the teams need to be honest with themselves and understand why they've been struggling. Is it because they've not had the money to put into things? Is it because they just simply have made some mistakes and it hasn't paid out, or is it because? They thought they had a great car, but when they then measure it on track, it's not the great car that the simulation and the CFD suggested. So in that case, you've really got to make sure that you've got either good or or why it's bad. Um, And there's no point trying to redesign a completely new car for 2021 if you haven't got those fundamentals understood yet. So teams like Williams may actually want to throw quite a bit of effort into 2020 to prove they're on the right track before they then divert that thinking into a completely new car or else all you're doing is just making new mistakes over old ones. As we're on the sort of um, 2021 cars now, uh, were you surprised by that press conference? Because remember last time you were on, we were talking about how how much of a watered down version we were going to get of the new regulations and it it seems to be very much what we thought they were going to be before we thought they were going to be watered down. Yeah, it's quite interesting. I mean, I think they've they've obviously chosen their battles quite carefully, which is the, what you would expect from someone as wise as sort of Ross Braun. So they've given up on some of the fixed specification parts like the gearbox and the brakes and other bits and pieces like that. So I think they've kind of you know, handed back to the team some control with areas like that. But with what we saw from the aerodynamic setup, and I think that really is the kind of the key thing that it was launched at that, that um, press conference and with the new regulations is that, you know, the, the wholesale change to the aero on the cars. That has actually remained unwatered down far more than I would ever expected. Um, I thought they were going to play with things uh, a lot more and, you know, succumb to some of the team's pressure, but that doesn't seem to have happened. So hopefully all the diligent work that Ross Braun's team has been doing um, on the aero side will pay off um, by giving us uh, better racing with these cars, which is what it's all about. Well, we did see the, the aero simulations and it looks like the air coming out the back of the cars is a lot cleaner than it mm-hmm. has been in previous years. So if cars can get closer, 
But then you get the issue of, will it still cause problems with the tyres? And we've been hearing that nobody seems to be keen on the 2020 spec tyres that have come through, which doesn't bode well for what rubber they're going to be using the following year when everything changes. Yeah, I mean, this that, that could really be the sort of the uh, the deal breaker, really. Obviously, the teams have only had one test on a very cold, very green and slightly damp Austin circuit um, at the last race. So, you know, they're making judgments based on very limited data and very unrepresentative data. So hopefully they'll get a chance to test those tyres again. I think Pirelli have a way of designing a tyre um, based about around what the FIA ask for. And, you know, it is this tyre that, you know, has the high degradation, but it's also not so much the degradation, but it's how that tyre then starts to manage its internal temperatures. So whether it struggled to heat it up or if you get thermal runaway because the tyre is sliding. And that seems to be the issue teams have with the with the tyre, with the Pirelli in, in particular, which is something you haven't had previously with yeah. uh, Michelin's and Bridgestone's and obviously going back. Um, and then you obviously for 2021, we're going to um, an 18 inch wheel rim with a very low sidewall tyre, which is totally new for Formula One. Um, I mean, I can't remember when we last had a very low profile tyre. Obviously in the 70s, you had a relatively small front tyre. But uh, then you had the massive balloon rear tyres back in those days because of the difference in the weight distribution. So this is going to be something completely new. Um, we've seen McLaren testing this week with yeah. the low-profile tyres. You know, all that data gets shared with all the other teams um, via Pirelli. Uh, so they'll know what's coming. But, um, you know, it really is a big uh, question mark for 2021. You know, how will teams cope with... Yeah, the tyre performance, how will they cope with the suspension performance, which again is you know, a quantum change for what they've been working on um, for the past you know, forever, effectively. I mean, what's the oldest team that's out there? It's uh, Ferrari. You know, they've raced on balloon tyres almost forever, really, haven't they? Yeah. Um, so this is, you know, is going to be a big change for the teams. And this potentially is the kind of the fly in the ointment for all of the good work that's been done. But equally you know then that potentially gives us the chance for someone to come up with something very clever in one of the midfield teams and you know outthink the uh, the top three teams which is i think what we all kind of hope with that there will be something of a reset in terms of you know the competitive order um you know i think we can we can hope for that but you know at the end of the day the bigger resources always tend to win out and if you have a good idea it's very quickly copied so yeah it's um yeah, I think tyres will be interesting. It's a stability thing as well, isn't it? With the with the new tyres, the the obviously the lower the profile on the tyres, the less tyre movement you get. Um, so that's mm-hmm. that's obviously going to put a lot more, as you were saying, just then about how they're going to um, it changes how the suspension works mm-hmm. and everything. It's going to be a completely different setup change just for these bigger wheels and and small lower profile tyres. Um, yeah, I've seen the like sort of like the road relevance sort of thing as well because um, being being brought up with this because obviously nobody nobody buys a car with thirteen inch wheels anymore. I haven't been able to do that since the eighties. But the um, yeah. but but low profile tires, eighteen inch wheels, something that you know people can relate to with their own cars, etc. Do you th- do you think that gives the 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 manufacturers like Mercedes, Renault? Uh, you know that gives them like a little bit of a head start because they know how their performance cars work with these lower profile tires. Even though they, you know, they're going to be completely different 
but it gives them a mm. little bit of a jump start ahead of the garage Easter teams like Williams and McLaren, for example. Well, McLaren make their own cars, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so ignore McLaren, but yeah, uh, over, yeah, over Williams and say Racing Point, for example. I'm. I, I take your point. I don't know if the 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 knowledge would come from a, a, the road car side of um, a company, rather than perhaps you know for Mercedes DTM. Uh, which obviously run low-profile tyres. You know, you've got lots of teams running in world insurance and in touring cars. So I think it'd be much more the motorsport side of low-profile tyres than the road side. And, you know, there's lots of very good tyre engineers out there. There's lots of, um, you know, uh, software packages and uh, knowledge out there which the teams can draw upon. And it, 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 which, you know, I, I say that and it makes it sound all very straightforward and simple, but... You know, you've got lots of factors that can affect the the tires. So, as you say, lower pro, profile tires, stiffer sidewalls, means the tire will generate much less heat. Um, and what teams are doing at the moment when they can't generate heat is they use the heat from the brakes. But what you'll have with the um, the new brakes and the new wheels is there'll be a bigger gap between the brake and the wheel. It'll be much harder to transfer heat between the two, which then means that there's one of these tuning options that or the setup options that the teams have got currently that which they won't have in 2021 and then you've got the suspension movement and how the damping is required and it's yeah everything changes and you know you could argue that to change the aero and the tires in one season is too big a step and obviously they've stepped back from changing the power units for 2021 as well i think it may have been better to actually introduce the tires either a year earlier or a year later to the aero change or vice versa um, just to give the teams, you know, a chance to focus on something, let that stable stabilize before you know playing with the next thing. Yep, yeah, makes can, sense. I can see Haas having uh, plenty of fun with that because they've been struggling to get <laughs> heat into the tyres at the moment. They'll probably work it out towards the end of next year, and then they'll get to twenty twenty one, and they're back in exactly the same <laughs> position that they were in before. Probably just as well for them; yes. they're not getting standardised brakes. However, at least... Uh, well, I mean, effectively, they, Haas already are, you could argue. They get they get the Ferrari set up. So, um, you know, I know we've spoken about this before, but, uh, you know, Haas's problem is that they don't design all of their cars. So they're always on a sort of a back foot um, because they have to work out how what they've got works before then applying it to, uh, yeah. you know, try to see what they need to change. So they really are in a difficult position and um, you know, it doesn't make sound like they're making any changes to the way that they go about racing in terms of the listed parts obviously there's aspects of that which change next season and there's aspects of that will change again for 2021 so you know partly their model will change by regulation but not because they want to personally design more of the car understand more of the car from their own engineers so you know i think they will continue to have good and bad seasons depending if everything works the way it should do yeah, going back to to what you said about, um, or what I briefly touched on before about Renault as well. Um, there's a team that should really be doing better than they are. Yeah. Um, they're they're a works team, and if you remember, they said that they were going to aim for was it wins in 2018? Uh, uh, no, podiums in 2018, yeah. wins in 2019, and a championship contender for 2020. I think it was. Yeah, I think so. Um, and now, like Renault's future in the sports, look kind of uncertain. I mean, if they thinking of pulling the plug on the team and if they do we're going to see like a huge like 
like a mushroom cloud, like erupt over Endstone, because like people are going to explode if Renault pull out of. <laughs> of, of what is, of what is it with one. the explosions with this podcast? We just we just pyromania. The end of Craig. the world is not nigh. Um, yeah, it, Renault have had a pretty awful season. Um, they had been making progress, which is makes it all the more odd that they're really struggling this year, and it does seem to be much more the car itself and how it works are between fast and slow corners than it does uh, simply because of the tyres like you would have with Haas. Um, the Renault um, powertrain, I mean, we've seen McLaren obviously are now showing, this is not, it's not something we would have said a couple of years ago, yeah. you know, the McLaren is showing that the powertrain that it's running is actually quite good and it's got a good chassis as well. So suddenly McLaren are shading um uh, Renault, which is not something I think any of us would have predicted pre-season because Renault were very much on the up and McLaren were really kind of struggling. Um, so we know the powertrain is okay. Um, it's not the best out there, but it trails probably Honda now very slightly. But we are, again, we're talking about very small margins. It's not the complete disaster of an engine that it has been for the past few years. Um, still the reliability isn't fantastic with the Renault, but I think they've had a much better year with the, with the power unit than they have previously, which just serves to highlight the, uh, the issues that the team have with, with the chassis and getting that working. And, uh, again, you know, it's, there's no lack of expertise at, at Enstone. Um, it's, you know, you just got to sort these people out and get them working in the best possible way. So again, it has to go back up to the management, and the uh, the confirmation that Pat Fry is joining there is quite interesting. It is, yeah. Um, I'm I'm not sure if it's a good or a bad thing. Now, no disrespect to to, to Pat, he's clearly he's a very good engineer, huge amount of experience. Um, he tried to make his mark um, at um, you know, various teams, and I just don't think that's what. Um, Renault are looking for right now. I mean, it's a very steady pair of hands, you know, and should steer them in a good direction. But I think Renault needs something a bit more fundamental than just another head there in between all the other people that are, are running that team. So I think there's something else, you know, at the top level of management there that needs sorting out rather than just throwing more heads at the problem. I mean, of course, the, the main issue for Renault recently was the, um, was the brake bias um, accused of circuit mapping and was it Grosjean that came out and said oh I had it in the car when it was a Lotus four years ago yeah this yeah. this again, this is yeah there's been lots of misreporting about this a lot of people jumping on the bandwagon and kind of ping, uh, finger pointing before any of the facts were, were truly known and um, I think what they have is actually a very simple system um, and it's not distance based at all it's not GPS based it's not active reactive or anything clever like that i think they just basically in set up um a list of preset brake biases which um you flick through as you go around the lap and you know rather than it being plus five percent forwards plus five percent forwards again it's plus 3.4 to get to what that corner would need would you um probably add as a memory either by the driver on some of the outlaps or Potentially, it could be programmed before the car runs, but I think that would be probably a bit contentious. So it probably is something that needs to be put in by the driver. And it just toggles through a set of brake bias settings, which suit 
um, you know, well, the simulation suggests is needed for that lap. Um, it looks like it's been on the car for a while. Um, judging from Grosjean's comments, it went on the car probably around 2014 when we had the change to the new power units and you could then have yeah. brake by wire for the rear. Um, so it's a fairly simple system. It's really not doing anything very clever other than just saving the driver, pushing a button um, before he reaches a different sequence of corners. Um, that said, the FIA feel it's a bit of a, a driver aid. Uh, I can I can support that. I mean, I don't think it's um, anything that's terribly bad or probably even something that gives you a massive amount of performance. So uh, a lot of shouting from... Uh, racing point about getting this banned and it's been dealt with by the FIA and it's a kind of a closed book really it's um it wasn't the the uh the sensation that it was starting to be when uh, racing point was saying oh they've got this incredible system on their car I don't think it was you know some kind of magic bullet you know clearly the car's performance shows that it wasn't a complete magic bullet but i don't think it was you know a particularly important system on the car but we've got the clarification now and everyone can move on yeah and we found that racing point are gonna are the first to complain about something that they don't like on another car that may or may not be illegal <laughs> all, um, all the fuss over the has floor Exactly. I remember, I remember you trying to explain it to us, and you, you need a degree in geometry just to be able to understand it. <laughs> uh, yeah, you, it's something that you have to see visually. It's not something that you can kind of uh, put in words and explain the shape of things. Um, yeah, I mean, it's this time of year that when everyone has kind of kept their powder dry and thinking, oh, when's a good time to kind of really wind up one of our rivals? Um, and, you know, often this is just really just to unsettle another team rather than to actually make any obvious performance difference between the cars um, at this point in the season. If so, you know, there was other races when I think uh, Renault scored better where Racing Point could have um, protested then uh, and got a, a bigger points haul than they did for, was it, was it Monza, I seem to remember, was it? Or was it Mexico? I can't remember now. Um, it was in Monza, wasn't it, where the floor was, it was protested? Monza, yeah, it? yeah. yeah. Hmm. So, um, yeah, so, I mean, yeah, yeah this, these, these sort of shenanigans go on all the time. And, you know, I'm sure Red Bull's um, protest about Ferrari and lots of the other chat about Ferrari isn't necessarily based on fact other than just kind of wind your rival up when they need to be concentrating on other things. <laughs> <laughs> but do you think maybe Racing Point was hoping that it was a bit of a magic bullet with them not being where they wanted to be? And if it, if it could have affected Renault at all, it might have sent them back their way a bit more. Well, exactly. I mean, you know, it's 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 there to try and eke a little advantage, for your own personal advantage out. I mean, if Renault and uh, Racing Point were nowhere near each other, it probably would never have come up because engineers go from team to team. And the first thing when an engineer goes to another team is they get a debriefed as to, so what have you guys been up to then before you <laughs> go and start your normal job? You know, this isn't this isn't anything new that doesn't happen in Formula One and, you know, in other forms of motorsport all the time. Yeah. So it is just a little bit of, you know, a bit of winding up, a little bit of trying to eke a performance. And uh, equally, it's like, well, if we can get that system banned, then that's money we don't have to spend to try and develop a system that's the same as that. So it's, you know, it's just all little um, little tricks that, you know, teams are always playing with each other. Yeah, I was going to say uh, another team that's uh, sort of fallen a little bit away as the season's gone on. Alfa Romeo, um, very similar to Ferrari in their philosophy of aero at the beginning of the uh, beginning of the season. 
Um, but then there was always that worry that maybe that was not the right path to go down and maybe both teams might have uh, boxed themselves in to sort of, you know, corner themselves with aero development uh ferrari appeared to have skirted around that and done as we, we've already discussed done okay but alpha haven't they sort of fallen backwards a little bit is that more is that because their aero development's just not been up there with ferraris or is it just the natural natural way of, of everybody around them improving yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's Alfa Romeo running out of steam a little bit because we saw them at the start of the season throw quite a lot of new bits at the car. Um, um, I'll talk about the sort of the aero philosophy and whether that was a, wasn't the right idea at the moment. But I think it's much more about them being able to throw um, time and money at the car and develop new parts um, because we haven't seen anything particularly sensational on the uh, Sauber and uh, Alfa Romeo, sorry, as you call it. Um, it's all right, we know who you time. mean, it's fine. We keep calling <laughs> Racing Point Force <laughs> India. <laughs> I think sometimes you don't, you're not even aware where, what name you're using when you're talking, are we? Um, as long as you don't call yeah, Mercedes I, I think... Tyrrell. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they would love that, wouldn't they? Yeah. Um, Yes, I, I think it is just them not having their development curve flattening out because of budget or other resource issues at the factory rather than it being um, a philosophy-led uh, thing. Um, I was speaking to various um, aero guys at um, a conference um, a week ago, and uh, they were all saying, oh, it's quite interesting because at the beginning of the year there was this Ferrari versus Mercedes Red Bull concept with the front wing and how that feeds back to the uh, barge boards and how it works with the front tyre outwash. And I, I felt that the Ferrari solution with the uh, what they call the inboard loaded, so the wings working on the inside and the yeah. outside is used for flow control. I thought that felt like a better solution. Um, and then you had... Um, obviously Mercedes and Red Bull and a few other teams with what they would describe as the outboard loaded. So it's the the wing profile near the wing tip that's doing all the downforce creation, which does that slightly to the detriment of the creating outwash to control the front tyre uh, turbulence, but does allow the barge boards to work slightly better. And from what we've really seen, everyone has moved more towards the Ferrari concept than they've moved um, towards the Mercedes concept. So if you look at what Mercedes have been doing, to an extent Red Bull, um, both of them have been going to a much flatter area of wing by the wingtip rather than having the um, that area being used for downforce creation. So I think that is one of the things where I think everyone will kind of equalise a little bit over the winter as they play with the concepts on the car. And you'll end up with something maybe not as extreme as the Ferrari and the Alfa Romeo solution, but something much more like that than what we saw with Mercedes and Red Bull at the start of the season. So I, I think maybe that concept has, has won out slightly uh, as the year goes by. But again, I think between the two solutions, you know, it's horses for courses. If you get one to work really well and you can get some potential out of that, then, you know, there's no reason necessarily to change um, it's just a case of, you know, you've only got so much air, what are you going to do with it? Um, but I think all of the teams have um, worked this year to make their cars slightly more efficient. And we're seeing a lot less of the really aggressive, dirty air, air, uh, airflow solutions on the cars that it was starting to look like early in the season, particularly with the with the Mercedes. Maybe if Mercedes had 
really pushed the development of that car much harder. We would have seen much more interesting bits appear on it um, along those lines. But, um, yeah, I think everyone's kind of just equalising on that sort of concept idea at the moment. And I don't think we'll see huge differences um, for 2020 in that respect. What about the uh, – did, uh, did you see the overlay of the uh, flexible – Mercedes front wing in Austin, where it was under braking, it looked like the the wing was flexing forward. Um, is that just is that is that just a little bit camera trickery, or is there is there just a little bit too much flex going on in that front wing? Um, it depends whether you're asking my opinion or if you're asking the what the regulations say. A uh, bit of um, both. <laughs> so, the way the regulations work is the wing has various flex tests uh, performed on it, both to stop it bowing downwards, which is what we saw particularly with that Mercedes wing, which really caught my eye. Yeah. And also they pulled down the, the rear edge of the flap, which is when you see the wing flatten off at speed. Um, so rather than it being a high, and a high angle of attack, it gets much flatter. Now, Mercedes, we had a lovely clear view of that <laughs> yep. in Austin, which was fantastic. Um, but if you look at the onboard shots from most teams, you will see the wing uh, flaps flatten at speed. Um, and that's because the load that's applied to that flap is much higher than the test that they um, apply to it. And there's no other means in the regulations to kind of prevent that bending, which is what we used to have with the rear wing. But they've really kind of got the regulations there much better worked out, although some teams do show evidence of flexing on the rear wings, but it's not as much as it used to so within the wording of the regulations what we're seeing is legal because the in wing inverted the commas it, yeah in inverted commas <laughs> it meets the test but it doesn't meet the what you might describe as the spirit of the regulation so it's a bit like uh, lance armstrong um you know he always passed the tests it doesn't mean it's not kind of cheating you know? um <laughs> Takes balls to do that. It's, 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 it's a. I think the FIA should need to be much tougher with this because, you know, we can't be naive about this. The teams are designing this flex in. This isn't well. Everything has to be flexible. Nothing can be infinitely stiff. You know, that's that's a true fact. But the fact of the matter is, the teams will design these wings on the aerodynamics and then with the um, the. Uh, finite element analysis to see how that wing flexes under load to get an aerodynamic benefit so there's no question this makes the car go quicker around a lap yeah but everybody does it the fi know about it we have the tests so it's kind of legal but in my mind that shouldn't be the case it's no. like well if we're going to have flexible bodywork let's have it if we say that it's not then let's put other regulations in place, like we've done with the rear wing, to stop this flexibility because, well, otherwise, why have regulations in the first place? You know, it's not innovation to try and work around a rule um, on flexible aero. I mean, that's not real no. innovation. I'd rather see much more interesting solutions being fitted to the car. It's really, you know, loopholes in the rules or, or cheating or, you know, just, you know, pushing the rules boundaries, which I don't really think is particularly useful or interesting but this as i say this isn't limited just to mercedes the mercedes one was just captured very clearly with the um you know the variation in downforce between the, the high speed straight and the uh, slow corners at um austin yeah geeky question then what kind of load uh, are those wings actually under when they're um going at full chat 
Uh, all right. Uh, I can't remember the figure offhand, but if you work it out that at about uh, probably a, a, a bit under 100 miles an hour, the front, the whole car is producing its own weight in downforce. So that's what 700 kilos. Yeah. The front wing produces about a third of the car's downforce. So that is what 200 kilos, should we say, as a rough figure? Yeah, just over. Uh, you yeah. got two. You got two sides of the front wing. So that front wing, at 100 miles an hour, which is probably the slowest corner that you'll get in Austin is about 100 kilos downforce doubles with speed so on the straight it's maybe getting 200 kilos um the test is 60 kilos wow (laughs) right okay so it's not not even not even a close amount (laughs) yeah yeah yeah, and the teams will go oh you couldn't put any more force to test our wings because they'll just break under the load and it's like (laughs) come on they they really won't will they you could get you know the biggest mechanic to stand on the wing and it will not break um, so don't know, Grosjean you know, seem pretty fragile. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean that does depend quite how you um, drive them into other cars. <laughs> but um, certainly in terms of uh, adding weight to the uh, the wing tip or to the, the rear edge of the flaps, you could go m- a much higher test load than than is currently being applied. So you know, even with that simple mass, it's pretty straightforward to see that. You know, you can make carbon fiber really stiff up to a certain point, which is what we saw with Red Bull and, you know, lots of other teams earlier in this, uh, you know, sort of during the 2000s. Um, And then just as you go past that loading, you can make the wings suddenly become very, very flexible. Um, And, you know, it's all, you know, it's all scientific. This isn't, you know, sort of any kind of, you know, sort of... uh, black magic or you know um weird science or anything it's all something you can actually sit down on a computer and predict and this is what the teams do and they try and make the most of what they've got within the the regulations and within the tests and the way that the fia apply this because this won't come you know looking at those images it won't come as a surprise to the fia that that is happening they just choose to say well we've got a test we'll just leave it there and we'll consider it legal which as i say in my opinion is wrong i think i agree no i'm with you on that we we need formula scarbs (laughs) (laughs) yeah i've not been called up to be uh to be a scrutineer yet i think there's far far more qualified people than than myself (laughs) yeah because by the sign of it you'll jump on people's front wings yeah (laughs) well it is yes i I might put a bit of weight on as well though if i was to start doing that i don't think my um I don't think I applied quite enough. Maybe I could bring a uh, bring a guest with me to do the standing on the wings. I'll, I'll come as ballast. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. There we go. That's the, that's the new test. Yeah. What's, what's your official job title, Lee? I stand on wings in Formula One. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we, we actually. Wings, yes. I, I'd have to get Ron Dennis to think me up a job title. Yeah, you would. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we actually uh, we we still refer to the step, you know, um, the, uh, the the step that the drivers now use to get into the car. We we actually start referring to that as the scarbs step because you explained to us about, about not standing on the floor when they get into the car. So because that that was was it this year they started doing it or last year? Uh, I think it was last year with the with the halo. Yeah, because, it was, it was yeah. last year because of the, the the change to the barge board regulations that oh, they okay. started to get really silly with it again. And the t- all the teams were designing their own steps, which I just thought was the most ridiculous piece of F1 tech um, ever. 
But uh, obviously, we wanted a bit of investigation and some photography, which is quite yeah. fun. Imagine, no. that, imagine running up to the, like the, the, the likes of you know Christian Horner or as it was at the time, Maurizio Rivabene. Go, Maurizio, Maurizio, Maurizio! I've designed a box for people to stand on. <laughs> no, I, I, I still think, far and away, the daftest piece of F1 tech designed was the square of carbon fibre that you saw at the start of the first episode of the Amazon series Grand Prix Driver in one of the boardrooms in the McLaren Technology Centre where it was put between two chairs, every two chairs, to make sure that each chair was the same space apart. It was a square of of carbon fibre with a handle and the McLaren logo on it. (laughs) It was a chair spacer. It was a chair spacer for the boardroom. I must have missed. I must have fast forwarded through that aspect of it. That yeah, but that that is that is very McLaren though, isn't it? It's um, you know, that's the level of detail they love to go to. Someone pointed out. Did you see the pictures of the uh, Mercedes all being lined up, all of their six championship cars uh, in front of the uh, factory at Brackley? And someone pointed out that the um, the driveway has got moss on it and has never been jet washed. And it's like, well, you just know that that is Brackley and it's not McLaren's uh, technical <laughs> answer, isn't it? <laughs> Lee, did you want to share with Scarbs now the, the story about what happened with the notepad when you went to McLaren at, at the desk? Well, I, can't, I can't remember. Was it when, when, when the woman tore the corner off the... Oh, yeah, the, uh, when she was giving us our little like passes with our names on it, uh, she she tore my pass off and she tore half the thing off it there. I said, don't you get sacked for things like that around here? (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) I was was just very disappointed. Not since Ron left. (laughs) I was just very disappointed to find out in the MTC they actually use bog standard Bic Byros. (laughs) (laughs) Only for you guys. I, I think yeah, things things have probably moved on since uh, Ron Dennis's uh, reign has uh, ended at uh, MTC. But yeah, um, th- there's lots and lots of really great uh, anecdotes from from that place about how they <laughs> used to manage the smallest details of things. But uh, maybe they're a bit more pragmatic nowadays. Now, I've, heard, I've heard the story about the soap dispensers. That there was a dripping one in one of the gents' toilets, so Ron Dennis made the engineers redesign all of them. And we didn't see any flying monkeys that were off to get Ferrari data. <laughs> <laughs> well, never Flying monkeys, you just need to have a, a meeting in a in a restaurant over a Grand Prix weekend. Yeah. It's just that was needed. Yeah, we're never going to get invited back, are no. we? And, and maybe in a no. lont, and a, maybe in a lont, so Gates seemed to follow him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, please tell me there is a gate at the MTC named after Fernando Alonso. <laughs> <laughs> On the subject of that, it's actually quite interesting that they want the uh, driver budget cap um, included, didn't they? Uh, at McLaren, Zach Brown was saying, "Oh, the driver's salary should be part of the budget cap." Yeah, because so, it's, um, from, it's the top three. From, from that, I assume that he hasn't. Yeah, he hasn't got Alonso on his books anymore, has <laughs> no, he? So. No, no, definitely not. No, is is it, dri- drivers aren't included in the top three highest-paid employees in the organisation. Don't come under the budget cap as well. Yeah, I, I imagine it does yeah. as well because it, for like what it's about three hundred grand, isn't it? Lando Norris has turned out to be a bargain this year. <laughs> <laughs> oh, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> um, talking to McLaren, what do you think about the um, the IndyCar entry for next season, teaming up with um, Arrow Schmidt Peterson? Um, it, it's not really my ex- area of expertise. I know a lot of people that uh, I know that are into um, IndyCar racing kind of raised a slight eyebrow about this. 
I'm not entirely sure why. Um, but it's certainly from the way they operated their team for, for last year, it seems that it's at least a better bet to, to start that direction. Um, so, you know, hopefully they'll, they'll have some sort of better results uh, and have a, a slightly stronger season. Um, what I was confused about is why they put a, a camouflage livery on an Indy car. Uh, is what were they? What were they camouflaging? We all know what the car looks like. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know that that, that standard you know, it, car it's, that it's, they it's, all use. <laughs> yeah, it's always the public domain. Why, why put camouflage on? I just didn't know it. It, it did remind me of a 1970s sofa. I have to tell you, um, that orange pattern. But um, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I think it's interesting that McLaren have actually put in so much effort to maintain an indie presence. And I think it's, you know, very much this kind of heritage thing that, you know, I think uh, McLaren are now sort of trying to push, you know, um, that they're, they're racing on sort of both sides of the Atlantic. And I think, you know, that's, you know, that's a good thing. And, um, you know, fingers crossed for them that they'll have a, a better season. I mean, do, is it a case of McLaren spreading themselves a little bit too thin because they're now backing the, um, what is it, the Bahrain Merida cycling team even more as well? Because local interest in that, because Mark Cavendish has just signed for him, so he's been um, turning up at the MTC oh, right. on his bike. Yes. And are they are they trying to sort of show that there's more to McLaren than hypercars and an F1 team these days? Yeah, I mean, this is always a balancing act, isn't it? I mean, you see, uh, you know, race teams, and particularly when they have um, big, big um, sponsors or ro- road car companies be becoming involved with them, that suddenly they get involved with a little bit of everything, spread themselves very thin, and you know, there's a few other sort of big names out there that could be accused of doing that right now. Um, it really depends um, on budget, doesn't it? If someone is funding this it is actually relatively easy to bring in the extra people from, you know, uh, America for the IndyCar team, um, you know, to sub some of the people at the F1 team and then backfill again. Um, so this this can all be done as long as you don't start to go too mad. And you have to remember that you've got, you know, McLaren as the race team, but you've also got McLaren um, applied technology. So you've got a big, yeah. you know, group of engineers sitting behind all of this that can be pulled in and out and this is going to be quite interesting for the midfield teams because you know you have Williams and McLaren are very big with this you know um, consulting arm attached to the team Red Bull are now upscaling their consulting arm Red Bull technology doing a lot more so like the IndyCar aero screen is one of their projects but they're involved in a lot lot more and this would be a way for the teams to actually play about with the budget cap because you've got to put your staff's uh, salaries into the budget cap. But if you've got a guy that works probably only six months of the year on you know, stress calculations or something when you're doing a new car, you've got to, you know, if that guy's employed full time permanently, he's on your books 12 months a year, even if he's only got six months of work. If they can then be subbed out to your consulting arm, then that's six months of salary that doesn't appear on the F1 team's balance sheet. So this was always, whenever they started to talk about um, these budget caps, all of these teams started to talk about these, you know, um, subsidiaries, yeah. yeah. And, you know, you'll find Mercedes probably do that with the, um, with the road car arm Ferrari. You know, I think it's quite evidential that they have people that they pull in and out of various aspects of the Ferrari uh, group to do bits of work here, there, and everywhere. So it's, you know, it it 
you can run these other projects and sometimes other projects will actually help you uh, look after your balance sheet with the uh, with the budget cap. And of course, if anyone on one of the other projects that isn't F1 related just happens to come up with something that the F1 side of the operation can use, then that's not going to be counted against um, their development costs. Call me, call me a cynic, yeah, but it's yeah. a possibility. Yeah, I mean there 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 is always that that situation, and you know, R and D budget is quite hard to quantify when you're getting into some of these groups and things. But um, you know, I think it, you know, I don't really I've not looked at the regulations in detail, but I think there could be some criticism of how the budget cap will be enforced, whether it's uh, proactive or reactive, um, um, exactly what gets included and how teams get um, imaginative with the uh, the bookkeeper, which we know is all possible and. Uh, could often be seen as completely legal and above board, even in uh, you know the normal world of commerce, not just uh, racing car teams. Is it, is it not going to have loads to do with sponsorship as well? Is, is, you're going to see loads more sponsors paying for more in teams, and therefore, um, you know, more marketing being done by Formula One drivers, you know, appearing on TV adverts or you know, YouTube clips for marketing purposes, um, just so that you know. There's more money coming in from sponsors as well as you know the, the, the salary cap and the budget cap that they're using. Yeah, I mean that you're right. There is that aspect to it, but equally, uh, increasingly, with um, Formula One teams, is that you don't necessarily get sponsorship in the form of cash in your hand. You get uh, technical partnerships. So you know, obviously, the fuel companies are a big example, and we saw some huge figures being touted about on social media this week about how much engine development has cost since 2014 you know they're talking about figures in the you know over a billion wow um you know that is just what the manufacturers have put in if you then think of what the fuel companies and all the other companies that have a an interest in powertrain development have put in as well the figure probably is even greater than that so you'll probably find you know teams getting more free brake calipers or dampers or you know we software Anything that can make that come off, and again, I don't entirely understand how the um, the, the budgeting and the uh, the monitoring of this goes. But if you do have a sponsor that gives you free wheels, is that is that counted, um, or is that you know a figure that never appears in your balance sheet? Therefore, it never um, counts towards your um, your budget cap. So, I, I, yeah, I don't think, know things like software as well. I mean, you know, your your analytic software. How can you put a price on that without actually having something to compare it to that would be a product to mm. buy? If you know what I mean. But it's all very, um, yeah, it, it it's a, a massive grey area. I think, which I think people are going to find many loopholes in. Well, does, uh, doesn't and, Ross and Braun have uh, doesn't Ross Braun have his loopholes team? I still think that they're going to find. Speci- just specifically to find as many loopholes as possible because well the learning from yeah, the, ma- the learning from the master I don't know if, <laughs> I don't know if that's going to be on the technical side or on the uh, the financial side because the loopholes team on the financial side I would imagine have a far more difficult job than people working out gaps in bodywork regulations um <laughs> send uh, up, send them over here we've got uh, enough creative accountants <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's there, there's probably a greater number of uh, creative accountants than there are um, creative engineers um, waiting around to uh, work for Formula One. <laughs> I suppose uh, driver salaries as well. There must be things that could be snuck away if that if that's not included. Well, exactly. It's uh, you know, I mean, I think it's it it 
not quite sure if it works that way to today, but Marlborough have always paid for the Ferrari driver's salaries. So does that appear, if the drivers were to be included, would that appear on the balance sheet or wouldn't it? Um, you know, you suddenly have drivers with, you know, their own personal sponsors and you know, maybe yeah. they'll get more of that and it gets siphoned off in other ways. So, you know, I, I don't, it's not an area of, you know, the, the regs that I really know in detail, but I think we can hear people throwing probably some fairly quite wild accusations at each other um, as these regulations settle in. But as I say, for a lot of the teams, the budget cap is, you know, it's a dream figure to reach that. They they won't reach that budget cap, um, you know, unless they suddenly got a lot more money coming through the door. And I think that is, you know, short term, uh, is you know a, a bit of a drawback but i think as they then bring that budget cap down um then maybe it will become a bit more of a level playing field you know with um with the midfield teams and you know the big budgeted teams here's, yeah, here's one for you as well the, the, the drivers sorry paul i was just gonna, i was just going to say when the budget cap was announced somebody asked so what is that in real terms and the only thing i could explain to him was three uh three williams or a ferrari wheel nut <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Yeah. It was probably something probably quite like that. Yeah. Yeah. No, but with the uh, with the drivers, do you think you might find a bit of a, an opportunity for younger drivers coming through, and maybe more drivers in a team? So I was literally just thinking it then as you as you were speaking, just like you might have two young drivers as the team's drivers, but the sponsors are actually providing the drivers who are in the cars on the race weekend. So. <laughs> So, yeah, so there are two drivers in their budget cap. Well, we're not paying them, technically speaking. So you know, it, it could. It, there's, yeah. there's too many variables, I think, for it to be to be be workable at the moment. I hope it doesn't become a massive like, point of conversation through 2021, like tires have been this yeah. year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that you know, I, I I don't know the details, but I think you know. I think it would be terrible if, um, as someone pointed out on social media, I, I think it was during, I, can't, I've, I've, I tried to say, I can't remember who it was. Um, it might have been Formula Money. They said, we could actually have the championship won at the last race, but you may have to wait two or three months to have the championship decided why they go through the accounts. So it's like, <laughs> whoa. That, yeah, you don't want that. That really, that really isn't a nice way of doing things. It would be obviously a terrible way for a team to lose a championship. But, yeah. you know. Imagine, uh, imagine I, that Lewis Hamilton wins his championship, and then in come the due diligence team. Yeah, <laughs> we'll just uh, we'll send the accountants up to the podium. <laughs> yes. So yeah, um, yeah, it could it could be tricky, but again, you know, from what I've seen of the regulations, they've been very thoroughly thought out, um, and you know, particularly on the technical side. Um, so you would have to hope that you know the amount of rigor they have put into this really will pay off in 2021 and we you know we get the the, the start of a, um, a formula one which will carry us through you know sort of the next decade with you know some exciting racing and some pretty exciting looking cars to be honest i mean i yeah. think they look quite cool yeah, I, think I, like yeah. I was going to ask actually are you excited for 2021 with these regulations that you've seen craig or is it something that you just think might peter out a little bit um i'm excited from a point of view that the the regulations for the, probably the, the first time ever have been really properly thought through. Yeah. Now we had the overtaking working group do it working for sort of 2009 regulations, but that was literally just a very brief project that was then never followed up. What we've now got is a mechanism to decide the regulations um, based mm -hmm. upon 
people actually working out the effect of a regulation change and then second-guessing the effects of a regulation change. So, you know, that that's aspect of it I'm really excited about. That's the way things should always have been, but never have been. The cars themselves, I think they're going the right, going the right direction again. I think that's all working really well. Um, there is the question, will the cars all look different than each other? Is there enough area for... Um, uh, differentiation between the cars and areas for teams to really be able to put their effort in and i must say, i've not read the regulations closely enough to really know that the cars will look a little bit different from each other because of the way they've reworded the regs i think that works really well for us um whether teams have had enough benefit with the aero i think teams will always have an aerodynamic advantage one way or another without screwing up the aims of the regulations so i think all of that is really good um you know, most people can't tell one F1 car apart, even with the colour schemes, let alone with they were all painted. <laughs> um, so I don't think, is in terms of visual differentiation, I think the team should be working on making damn sight better liveries rather than bitching about they can't add, um, <laughs> you know, any visual differentiation. Because let's face it, no team principal goes to, into the design office or into the uh, aero department and says. I want a car that looks really different from everybody else's. I want a real big feature on the side of the car because it just, you know, the engineers just don't work that way. No. So, you know, and everyone tends to start to follow the same design after a year or two anyway. We've seen that already this year. So, you know, I think the, some of the criticisms about that will be um, kind of just people complaining before the event which is we often get when you get regulation changes. Everyone always sort of will find something to moan about, which, you know, it's actual impact after, you know, it's kind of very much like the halo and yeah. with, um, you know, with the regulations again this year, oh, the cars are going to look awful and oh, this is terrible. And it's actually, it makes, it's a very little consequence when it actually happens. So I don't think that would be a big issue. And look at all um, those people that stopped watching Formula One when the halos went on. What fools. <laughs> what, whatever I mean, whatever know, happened to them? <laughs> Yeah, you know, and it's the same people complaining now about the next big thing that were complaining about the last big thing yeah. and the big thing before that. So it's just, you know, that's just this, the nature of people moaning on social media, I think, to be honest. So, yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm quite excited. Um, whether I'll have quite the same amount of work to do in seeing the big differences between the cars will be, you know, a little bit debatable. But, um, you know, I, I, I would accept that. Um sort of slight lack of technical diversity and development visual development for better racing which is really what we're all interested in at the end of the day yeah um and some of these spec parts have been scaled back or uh, you know their introduction has been delayed and again i think that's something that the sport still needs even under the budget cap um and um, i don't think it would be a detriment to the sport um and we'll just you know see that these regulations how they work and how Ross Braun's team react to what the teams, you know, do with the cars under these regulations, because that will be the real test for this process, not just the year one, but when someone comes out with something that everyone then slaps their forehead and goes, oh, God, we didn't think about that. And, you know, what will they do to, uh, to circumvent, you know, some of the clever thinking that the teams are bound to come up with? Do you think it was a bit of a shame that the um, Saturday qualifying race was sort of scuppered as the experiments before it started um i think my, my gut reaction was no i don't i don't think it was a, 
um, a problem at all. I don't think they should have had a qualifying race. It just doesn't feel... Formula One's never had qualifying races. We do not say that it should never, ever have them. Um, but I think qualifying works quite well as a spectacle at the moment. And um, I don't think a qualifying race would necessarily add any great change to it, especially if we're going to get better racing on a Sunday with these new cars. So, you know, I mean, I think that's something maybe they could put on ice for the future. They've talked about changing the weekend format. And uh, again, I'm I'm not against that. But then you do have the issue is that, that you know, these we don't have any hardly any testing so people can't get to see the cars in between races um we don't have much pre-season testing a lot of people turn up on the friday because it's the best day to see the cars because you get you know quite a few hours of running and it's cheap to get in if you're then going to lose friday from a revised weekend package then you know what why are fans turning up i mean if you think about it if they turn up on a Saturday, they get an hour of practice and, well, it depended on which team they they, they or driver they're backing, they might not get less than, you know, uh, a few minutes of qualifying. Robert Kubica. Uh, the same. <laughs> yes, exactly. You get, uh, you know, an, an hour on Saturday morning and then... Two minutes. 15 minutes. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the race lasts an hour and a half, so Sunday's not very good value. There's no sunday morning warm-up anymore so if you cut away friday as well and you know not not to again not to be derogatory against um f3 and um f2 you know the support package at a grand prix is nothing like it used to be you mean you should get into track action all day long loads of entertainment on track nowadays particularly at the flyaway races you get you know some some historics or some TCRs or maybe a Porsche Super Cup race, which isn't really entertaining the fans for uh, a very expensive ticket for a day. Oh, um, oh so lo- think- local millionaires going past in a supercar. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> you know, uh, fan experience, they call it of summit, isn't it? And it's like, well, there's not many fans getting an experience there, is there? No. <laughs> um, and it just, you know, that it st- strikes me as that we should be having the cars out on circuit more not less um so you know I, I would rather see more practice sessions maybe forcing friday to be maybe the young driver program or something and you know and then getting a bit more sunday of a longer warm-up. session sunday warm-up i think would be fantastic i mean i i used to watch that so that was I. about the start of the day's the start of the day's viewing before the days where you had like a two-hour build-up show where you know they talk about I don't know what they talk about in a two-hour build-up show, but it, talk about how Max Verstappen likes his toast. I, I have massive problems with Sky's build-up for the Formula <laughs> One. Like it's, yeah. I, how, I, I how did, good are drivers at darts and basketball? I it, mean, exactly. This What's this all about? The limited expo- exposure I, we get to these drivers, we need to make the most of it. So yeah, I think darts is a critical factor. I can quite honestly say I could have lived my whole life without seeing Natalie Pinkham and Anthony Davidson have a cup of coffee in Spain. I could have gone yeah. without that. I'd have been fine. <laughs> <laughs> mm, I wonder what Kimi Raikkonen's well, I... like when he, when he races a child's toy. <laughs> well, okay, I'm intrigued, but I don't need to see it. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, it's, um, you know, when the, when the sport has got so much complexity to the, you know, the sporting and the technical side and, you know, so much going on. I, you know, I, it would be nice to see more more in depth view of that than 
some of the superficial stuff that does go on. But I think above all, I'd much rather just see the cars, the cars on on track. I think. Um, sorry, uh, I think. Go on. Sorry, go on. No, go on. Go on. Finish. Go on. No, I was going to say I think they uh, Sky could learn a lot from uh, what Formula One are doing on the app now because the their coverage was just Will Buxton talking to drivers and talking about what's what the race is going to be. What has happened and it's what, what's more, likely to happen. Far yeah. more interesting than what Sky do for two hours. Yeah, I mean it's it, it's strange. It's it, as a I mean I'll I'll come out on the side of the broadcasters for a moment. It is very hard to pitch how you do your coverage um to your fans because obviously you get a lot of very casual fans for formula one even with you know the pay-per-view uh format so it's very hard for them to decide what to do but that said when you see the number of you know people with all of these broadcasters and yeah we're not just talking about sky you talk about all the international broadcasters how little some of them actually seem to do with anything other than the scheduled press conferences you do wonder <laughs> Yeah. Why do you send so many people to a race? But then you do see the people that do a really good job. And, you know, Will Buxton on the official Formula One is a, in a, a great example. Is if you can just shove a microphone in front of someone because they're passing, you get really interesting stuff. And this is, you know, the sort of stuff that I, I've tended to do. And uh, as you know, I work a lot with Peter Windsor, who spent, you know, decades yep. doing this. And the little snippets you can get from someone just from a, a, a side comment. Um, is so much more interesting than for these big staged things, you know, particularly when the teams will finally give, you know, a broadcaster three minutes with a driver, as long as you've got prearranged questions that have been vetted by all the sponsors and all the PR people. And it just ends up being a very bland, in, bland interview. Um, just snapping someone going, Oh, you had a bit of a wobble during practice and they'll go, Oh yeah, why well, this happened. And, uh, Oh, you know what happened with your brakes in the race and you're just getting some feedback. And I think that's one of the things that you get with sort of Ted's notebook that comes across very well with sky that doesn't come across in, you know, lots of their other coverage, just grabbing people in the moment and just, yeah. you know, getting a bit of information that otherwise doesn't tend to get recorded. Well, do you remember, uh, like- it doesn't get covered by the I was going to say, do you remember like during the 90s, uh, like, I, I can remember watching Formula 1 and it would just be like reporters waiting by the team trucks for a driver to leave and yeah. trying to grab a word with them then. It was never like this prearranged yeah. press pen uh, or anything like that. It was just like, you know, mm. waiting for Gerhard Berger to, to, to leave the McLaren truck to find out why he crashed in the race because mm, he, he was because he was in the probably because he was in there talking to ron dennis he was actually having his debrief and then he'd have to come out but now they've got yeah. this the, you know these actual press areas um it, it's just a it's not clinical it's it's because obviously you get a little bit more access to the drivers <laughs> but the access that you get is less less personal less it's it's, it's far more less organic yeah less yeah. organic it's far more um it is um, you know media training etc has to be done now so yeah, I mean, there's again, there's there is a couple of sides to that. I mean, if you ask every driver, so how was your race? Um, you're going to get a very bland answer from them, um, and a lot of, you know, a lot of people probably don't even know some of the detail of the the, the driver's strategy or the issues they've had in the race, um, because they've sat the whole race literally with headphones on outside the pen, waiting for people to come through in case there's a retirement. And I, I've done some work in the media pen for. Uh, Chinese TV. Yeah. If you catch the driver with a slightly odd question or with a, a little bit of insight of something that's happened in their race, 
they respond so very differently to you and they will actually then start to tell you some of their story of their race rather than just oh for sure it was very difficult we really were hoping for something a bit better but if you say well, actually, Nico, that you was on the soft in that middle stint, and it just didn't seem to happen for you. And then, you know, they'll come back and go, yeah, and then start to tell you about it as though they're giving you a debrief. There are, there are ways of tackling these, you know, and then, you know, some of the drivers will expect that from you, and um, some of the drivers will be attracted by other people in the pen asking blander questions if they really want to feel like they want to get an easy ride. So, um, yeah, yeah, they're, they're, yeah they're, I, I think fans do de- deserve slightly better tv coverage all over to be honest but then again Agreed. you know we're a bit spoiled i mean i, I watched um an old race replay uh, the other day it was one of the ones yeah the kind of the, the bbc grand prix coverage from the 80s which would be shown typically on a monday night highlights that would start after the, the opening credits had finished with the race start <laughs> Maybe if we were lucky, we would see who the grid order. It would go straight into the race start, and then all Murray Walker and James Hunt would have is the order of the cars. So all the the commentary would literally be, and so and so is now in fourth, and so and so is now in fifth, and so and so is now in sixth, and then someone's overtaken, and we'll talk about that in a minute, and then we'll just go back to giving you the order. And the thirty minutes later, the program finished with the car going over the finishing line, and that was it. That's all we got. <laughs> Still sounds but, better than the are, idea of James are, Allen. <laughs> yeah, we are slightly spoiled now. <laughs> well, even even going back to sort of the nineties and stuff, you watch sort of, sort of races in the nineties, you, know, you 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 realise just how good the actual coverage is of the races. It's just sometimes I think I, I understand Sky have the. Um, well, they've got to pull in the other fa- the they, new the, viewers and yeah, stuff like it. that. People who are casual fans. But sometimes I, yeah. I feel like I watch Sky and they feel like everybody that turns their telly on, this is the first race they've ever, see, ever seen. And I, I think it yeah. goes far too much that way sometimes. For a sport that is essentially, yeah. you know, it's, it's a nerd sport. If you're into it, you're into it. I mean, there's, there's, you know, the, the great thing about Formula One is that you get a very broad variety of fans from you know the very young to the very old you're getting you know you know and all people across all different sort of um genres and then you know you get the people that are really deeply into it and the people that aren't deeply into it and i think the coverage needs to reflect i mean imagine if you could get a you know half hour on hourly week show just after the grand prix had finished on a monday or tuesday that really did do all that deep technical stuff. And it's, you know, it's not being produced by people. And I found that really kind of disappointing because it's not very expensive TV to do stuff like this. Um, so I think there is still an opening there for that. But, you know, my, my fear is I think we're losing Channel 4 at the end of the season. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, you won't, you're not encouraging people into the sport either. We've got a camera here now. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think there's a yeah, chance? Yeah, well, send you guys over. That's no, that's quite straightforward. <laughs> <isn't it? laughs> do you uh, do you think there's a chance with the with, like Netflix doing the the review thing every, uh, every year now? Do you think there's a mm. chance that once the Sky rights are up, you could see it go to a streaming service like Netflix? I mean, I think it's a possibility. Um, you know, I mean, that's where that's where, where the money seems to be at the moment. Um, um, on, on the point of the Netflix, actually, you know, we, we, you know, we're kind of talking about maybe the nerdy side, but, you know, Formula One is just, you know, a whole heap of stories. Everyone in the paddock is interesting. Every race weekend is interesting. And the Netflix series really kind of caught that. I thought it was um, brilliant. 
at a range of levels. You know, I mean, you know, Gunter Steiner is clearly now uh, you know, the world's biggest celebrity and he's probably going to be, <laughs> you know, winning all heaps of awards and stuff. But well, we, we've, we, we've re- renamed our heroes and villains prediction for uh, for each race. It's now rock stars and wankers. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But uh, that's the stuff that should, you know, the Netflix stuff is what should be being produced by F1 and by the all of the other uh, broadcasters. That's the level of stuff that we, we should be seeing, all of these stories. That's the interesting stuff. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the, the future for, for, for F1 in terms of broadcast, and I, mean, I don't know much about the, which way they're going to go with the financial model, but, you know, somewhere, somewhere on the line, someone's going to have to stump up a heap of cash. That has been the satellite broadcasters. Maybe it will be the streaming services. Um, maybe it will be something else. You know, it can't be the circuits. We've seen that. You know, that mm-hmm. Bernie model is unsustainable. It can't be ticket prices. So we need to find ways of you know funding the sport to get it out there, and hopefully it's at a cost that's reasonable for fans to just come across the sport because you know there's so much variety on of sport on. I say on TV. It's not on TV anymore, is it? It's across every you know, uh, visual uh, channel, you know, mm. particularly with the internet now. So, you know, if it's stuck on TV, if it's stuck on pay-per-view, you're not going to be encouraging people in. And, you know, equally with the regulations, if you're not thinking about the next generation, then you know, your sport becomes a heritage series and parks itself in a cul-de-sac yeah. very quickly. And it, may, you know, it, it will probably, you know, it's got huge coverage, Formula One, it will take a long time for that to degrade to the point where it's, you know, financially unviable. But if you don't look after it, you know, that could happen. And, you know, that is always a worry for people involved in the media of the sport and obviously for the fans of the sport. Yeah, I need to make it viable for the circuits as well as the fans. Yeah. Because, you mm-hmm. know, some some of the traditional circuits, including the Brazilian one, which is coming up this weekend, appears to not going to be around much longer. Well, exactly, and you know there were some worrying comments from Chase Perry today. It's like, oh, yeah, we're going to have to delete some of the circuits that don't meet our brand image, and it's like, what does that mean? Yeah. What circuits don't? Meet? Because you know, like Korea has gone. Sounds a bit, sounds a bit Bernie-ish, that doesn't it? You know, when he was when we were talking about getting rid of Spa and Silverstone and things. I don't think he said delete. I think he said terminate with, <laughs> with extreme <laughs> prejudice. <laughs> Well, exactly. And, you know, I think Formula One, it needs to have these new circuits. And, you know, that's all part of bringing in new markets. But it does also need to trade on its heritage as well. Absolutely. You know, there's a balance there. And if it, if we had nothing but, you know, new emerging economy races for 2025, God help us, races a year, I think Formula One would very soon lose its interest because you need to have and, you know, not especially all of them, but you need to have your Monaco's, your Spa's, your Monza's, you know, French Germany, uh, British Grand Prix. Um, but equally, they, you know, some of these circuits and, uh, you know, sadly, I think Silverstone may be one of them that hasn't really kind of put the effort in for the fans that perhaps it needed to. Um, and, you know, do they deserve to have a Grand Prix just because of heritage? You know, it, it's difficult, but if it's down to the circuit to always be having to put the money in, uh, and still turn a profit from ticket sales, yeah. then it becomes difficult for them. So if they're paid to put an event on, you know, I mean, a Grand Prix used to be, I remember going as a, as a child in the 70s, and it was, you know, an absolute circus of an event. Everything was going on. Now, admittedly, that was when you had lots of you know, tobacco money sponsoring all sorts of bits and pieces going on there. But, you know, 
concerts, other races, other stuff going on, on track, off track. I mean, that, yeah, it needs to, a Grand Prix needs to be a huge event. And, you know, there's very few races that really put on something. I mean, you're really looking at places like, you know, Singapore do a, a it becomes a big event. And it tends to be the city centre ones, the more I think about it now out loud. You know, you think of Montreal, Melbourne, Austin. Mm. You know, they're all the circuits are all very closely tied to a capital and to a big event. And they are the best races to go to um, as as a fan. You know, uh, luckily in my situation as, as a journalist, they're the ones you really enjoy. When you're, you know, miles out of town in the middle of nowhere and there's not much else going on, it's like, well, it's just a race. Korea. You know, it's like... That's taking us back to Korea again. <laughs> I, I, I never did Korea, so I'll have to um, skip judgment on it. But, um, you know, with the Chinese Grand Prix, I mean, that the circuit is a long way from anywhere. And it's a really, really long way from the really quite exciting and vibrant centre of Shanghai um so and there's not much else going on trackside and you know there's lots of other races that are a bit like that as well i'm not just picking on china or even you know far-flung races some of the european races are very much the same so yeah i think you know, the whole sport and i this is what i'm a little bit disappointed with liberty that whole kind of holistic view of what a grand prix should be how we're going to fund all of this i don't think they've really nailed that yet and I'm, I'm worried that you know time's moving on and they haven't really kind of changed the model that much yeah we're, st- we're still waiting for these 20 super bowls a year that they were promising yeah 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 well they did they did did knock on the head the uh, the commentator at the start of the american grand prix that they tried a few years ago so they've they've learned from at least a couple of mistakes <laughs> What I worry about is with bringing the new races and stuff in is that we end up with a calendar of half street races. Um, yeah, well, I mean, it, it, you, you, know, you could always equally turn up with a whole load of Tilka circuits, which, you know, yeah. Yeah. everyone seems to go the same people. So, you know, I mean, I think there needs to be more variety in the circuit. So, you know, back in the day, and I put my old man hat on now, and it's like you would have some super fast tracks, Paul Ricard, Silverstone used to be like one of the super, super fast, as well as like Monza yeah. before the Chicago's. No one seems to be going out of their way to build super fast tracks. Um, you know, you've then got, you know, tracks that had, you know, big hills and tracks that were very tight. And then you had street circuits and then you had street circuits in, in, in odd places like, you know, Las Vegas car parks and, um, you know, ones with interesting backdrops and then you had dallas which was you know they tried to make it a very fast street circuit there was a lot of variety but everything now tends to be very medium mm-hmm. everything's a kind of a medium speed corners a couple of longish straights to give a bit of interest and that that's just kind of it and, you know there's just not a lot of interest with these with these tracks and you, you know even if you think back as recently as somewhere like turkey which was a fantastic track you know really challenged the cars when you see all these new circuits where are these really challenging corners that you know have legends built up around them you know the sort of the tarzans of zanvort and you know the uh uh, you know rouge uh, and you know corners like that there's you know there's very few places where the cars are really stressed out on on some circuits and i think we need to see a bit more of that cars and drivers Drivers as yeah, well. Yeah, well, you know, it's both of them. I mean, I don't give a, a monkey's about most of the drivers, but, um, you know, it's, <laughs> if, the car, if, the car, if the cars are stressed, then at least it will give the driver something to concentrate on exactly. while they're busy talking to their race engineers. So, yeah. <laughs> well, in case of Lando Norris, singing to your race engineer. 
<laughs> yeah, no, we, we don't want to encourage that. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> well, talk, talking of um, circuits that are kind of traditional, we do have the Brazilian Grand Prix this weekend. I think it's probably an idea to take a look at that. Yes, probably. Mm. First race in a long time that Toto Wolf isn't going to, which is uh, odd. Well, I suppose he's got he's got nothing to um, sort of be depended upon. I mean, it's all kind of downhill from here now for Mercedes to the end of the year, and this, is, you know, oddly, has been a feature for the for quite a few years. Um, it's going to be an interesting weekend, isn't it? I mean, the circuit. It's, you know, it's a real split of, you know, the, the, the back section and the long straights. You've got the altitude, which really gives the uh, the chassis a workout. So it should be one that really stabilises the competitiveness between Ferrari, Red Bull and Mercedes. I don't think there's anyone that really jumps out as an obvious favourite, other than really knowing what the weather's going to be like. Because obviously it can be quite cold. It can be very, very hot. Changeable. Um, we can get the rain. Uh, which changes, you know, the effect of the tyres. Obviously, if we get rain in quali or the race, everything, you know, suddenly um, comes up for grabs. So I think it would be actually a slightly more interesting race if we did have some uh, rain during the race to see some of the midfield teams, you know, work their strategy. Some of these young drivers and some of the maybe the midfield experienced drivers pull a result out of the bag that, you know, embarrasses the top teams. I think that would be the, where the excitement would really be. Um, but it'd be very hard otherwise on a com- completely normal weekend with reasonable temperatures to say who'd come out on top. Um, I think um, Bottas is clearly on a bit of a roll at the moment. Um, historically, Hamilton, you know, has a, a, I don't want to call it a lull because that's a bit insulting to him, but he doesn't always perform at his best after he's won the championship for those last sort of few races. We've often seen his, yeah. you know, his, the other driver have a much more success at the last couple of races of the year than they have when Hamilton's kind of on full song mid-season, you know, gunning for the championship. So that's a, could be a slightly interesting thing. I think the, the, the needle at Ferrari is quite interesting at the moment as well, isn't it? Between the Between, two drivers. Yeah, on any it is, day. Yeah. Um, you know, each of them can be quite magnanimous when they're either beating or have been soundly beaten, um, between each other. And, um, Equally, I think Albon in the Red Bull is starting to get his act together a little bit, isn't he? Um, I know, I think the final result in Austin maybe isn't quite what he wanted, being behind, I think, a Renault and Aaron, if I remember the top of my head. That but, drive um, was great, though. He had a, such a good drive. Yeah, and I mean, I think we're, we, you know, we're seeing up and down the grid, and I think the TV's been relatively good this year and showing lots of the midfield action. Um, and you know some of the sort of the ding dongs that are going around there because it's it, it's you know continuing to be a very tight midfield and we've got some of the drivers there now that really are starting to sort of show their colours and you're seeing um, you know I think Norris really has kind of made a mark for himself Albon uh, I think you know the, the Toro drivers as well now they've had a little shuffle around of drivers it's yeah you know, the midfield is really quite interesting and it, as I say the wet weather this weekend I think really would bring that lot really to the front of the cameras which should make for a, a cracking race because i don't think abu dhabi is the, the final race no. is really going to deliver us a huge amount of excitement so we're really kind of relying on brazil to really have the fireworks got to be looking at the verstappen's revenge haven't you really 
from after what happened to him last year and he usually oh, performs yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he usually performs yeah, no, pretty no. well um but did he did he do a bit of a of a of a vettel vettel in canada this year he rammed into the sign that said he was second after um when he pulled into the pulled into the paddock and he into the into park Fermi there i think he was he was fairly oh, upset yes. when he when he when he got out of the car that's when the whole Ocon incident happened. Yeah, wasn't Ocon it? Drove, yeah. drove into him, lapping him. Yeah, unlapping himself. Unlapping. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, actually, yeah, I mean, the first lap could be really interesting as well, especially if we have a slightly damp start. Imagine that everyone going through that first sequence of bends and then down to that. You have, then then have the long downhill straight, don't you, into that quite tight turn? Yeah. What you imagine want to... the mess they would make of each other. Yeah. <laughs> what you want to happen is. Dry as they set off, and it starts raining on the formation lap. It looks <laughs> like it's going to be sort of changeable weather conditions on Sunday between uh, damp and bright. That's so Brazil, we might get it. Damp and bright, well, or we really wet, just damp. Oh. Less than a centimeter no, of rain. Damp, yeah, I think when it comes wet, it becomes too much of a lottery. But I think flitting between damp and almost dry enough to be on slicks. I think that's when the, the driver skill and the team tactics really pay off, isn't it? Yeah. Once it's fully wet, they can't race. And I mean, it's, you know, it, you can be thrown off the circuit through absolutely no fault of your own. I don't think that's driver skill. And that's just luck. So yeah, yeah we want, we don't, we want intermediates, certainly not wets going out there. Um, and yeah, I think rain on the outlap on the uh, parade lap. Yeah. That would do me. That yeah. Would, <laughs> that would, that, that would that would fit the, uh, the the script really nicely, just to kind of round the ear off with a real um, whiz bang of a race. It would do. <laughs> We've only have we only had one wet race at Brazil. No, this year, this season, Germany. Yeah, just the one wet race. It's it, it's rained like ten minutes after the race a load of times. <laughs> Yeah, 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 we've not really had. Yeah, I, I don't even. I, I can't even remember the German race, which is the, really strange. The one where Mercedes forgot what? how to do pit stops. Ah, oh, yes, yeah. yes, yes. <laughs> so it's completely got up. I'm, I'm not great remembering the specifics of races. I could tell you what wings they were running and bits like yeah. that, but I really can't remember. You should have said some Paul, of the, the, the one where Kvyat got a podium. <laughs> I, I was watching the German Grand Prix on Sky Go. So imagine my confusion when the stream like messed up a little bit. Only, only for mere seconds. And it, everything was fine before this happened. And then when the stream came back, Stroll was leading a Grand Prix. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing wow. more yeah, confusing that, yeah. has ever happened. <laughs> yeah, that is a bit odd. But um, yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, in... If, if you if you got to put a, a name, I think you know. I think certainly Verstappen would be uh, a, a nice gamble to go for for the mm-hmm. weekend, other than the kind of the almost foregone conclusion of a Mercedes driver. Yeah, yeah. I I think a a a good couple of quid would be on Albon as well, doing something crazy special. Yep. I think Al, a, a good bet. Well, yeah, Albon for a podium. I think mm. you, you you'll get some nice odds for that, and I think there's a good chance of that one paying off. Yeah. Should we, um, should we do some predictions for top three? Old then? money, and <laughs> yeah, uh, a non a non top three car on the podium, I think, would probably be the uh, yeah. the real killer mm. bet. Um, uh, Besides, chances are if you if you're going to bet on somebody, it'd be science. Well, if it's, it? if it's changeable, you'd say probably Lando because uh, I know he didn't really get a chance to show what he could do in in in, in the in the damp wet conditions in germany but the um 
don't forget when he did that Daytona 24-hour race mm. with um, Zach Brown's team, he was, uh, when it was wet for that two-hour period, he was a second a lap faster than the race leaders mm. in a car that he'd barely driven yeah. before. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, it, it, there's so much talent out there in the midfield at the moment. Um, you know, it's, as you say, between Science and Norris, you've got a bit more experience and, uh, you know, on science on his day, you know, when he puts his head down, he, he's producing fantastic racing. And we yeah. know that Norris is, you know, has got the potential there. I think we just need to see that kind of uh, brought out in a race. You know, you've got the you think of the, the, the two Renault drivers in a wet race. Hulkenberg and Ricardo could, you know, could be on the podium yeah. if they got their, you know, their act together. And, um, you know. Perez always pulls together a fantastic race as well, you know, in, in mixed conditions and when the tyres need to be used a certain way. So, yeah, you know, there's there's lots of scope out there for some 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 cracking racing. Lando just needs to shake off that Johnny Herbert look he seems to have acquired. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, yes. it, it was on for yeah. pole position until the seagull flew into his airbox. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's... It, yeah. You get, you know, when you can see potential in drivers, it's really frustrating sometimes, isn't it? When you just want them to be able to kind of pull out that result that you just think is in there. And I think this year we've been a bit frustrated, particularly with Leclerc, who hasn't really kind of pulled out some of the performances we thought that he really was capable of. Um, and um, at the moment, you know, I think maybe a lot of people, maybe the jury's out, but then you get weekends when Vettel's on song and everyone who's been lambasting all year for making stupid mistakes just puts in a great performance it's like yeah. oh, God. <laughs> I, I i've said all year that we were com- we were comparing um leclerc and like lord and leclerc against a wounded vettel you know it's it wasn't a real comparison to what sebastian vettel's been in the past so i'm still like since vettel seems to have come back a bit uh leclerc seems to have dropped off yeah, with a bit of yeah, performance, it's yeah. Inter- it, it's very interesting. And, um, you know, you can only just imagine the pressures at Ferrari, particularly in a year where you, everyone feels you've kind of thrown it away, um, both from a team and a driver perspective. The pressure on those two guys must be immense. Uh, and then just, you know, weekend after weekend, seeing Mercedes just kind of just beat them in the second half of the race. It's like, oh, for God's sake, what's going mm-hmm. on? Yeah. Why can't I just put this performance in and just get it done, you know, on a regular basis? It's, yeah, it's it's really difficult. But I suppose in some respects, we, we talk about that, but that does show the consistency, particularly of Hamilton this year. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think that is really what's won him the championship, isn't it? That, you know, he comes out and he performs on a very even level every weekend. I know that maybe he has a couple of races a year where he's not quite on song, but you know, every other race you don't see him binning it. You don't see him screwing things up and you know, everyone else, every other five drivers in those top three teams you see do that and that lack of consistency. So, you know, um, it can be done and Hamilton's proved it this year and he, you know, he's won the championship early as a result of that. He's, was, still, he's still not finished outside the points this year, has he? No, I don't think so. Uh, I think he's finished every race. So yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, he had one dreadfully bad race, and I'm trying to remember what the situation was. Germany, but... and he ended up in the points because of a penalty. Yeah. No, I think he. I think he was finished ninth. Oh, was it ninth? Yeah. yeah. I thought I can seem to remember a more recent dry race where he was about eighth or ninth. Was it Austria? 
Yeah, possibly. Austria. Yeah, it was in the temp- in the heat of Austria, wasn't it? Which maybe obviously wasn't wasn't his issue. It was the um, the, the the cooling on the on the Mercedes. But um, you know, you do get other weekends where he's just not quite on the pace. But yeah, by and large, you know, he works every set of tyres really reliably, which is one of his real race day skills. And you know, he's he's kind of always there or thereabouts. And I think these other drivers have had such up and down seasons. You know, you can you can you can see why championships are so easily lost and you know seasons get lost like ferrari have had this year i I was thinking about this uh today like hamilton's consistency and the only other person i could think about when it comes to that was schumacher i thought but it's even more impressive how hamilton's doing it because like schumacher would turn up to races in the best car knowing that his teammate wasn't allowed to beat him let alone capable of beating him Mm -hmm. You know, whereas Ham- Hamilton knows that if Bottas is capable of be- beating him on that day, he will be allowed to do it. Um, yeah, I, th- I, I agree to an extent. I mean, I think Bottas has, has got his wingman uh, badges out quite a few times this year at points when we really didn't think that was necessary. Um, and I think Hamilton's mindset at the moment is knowing that he can beat Bottas on the majority of weekends. And I think that's really where, what gives Hamilton his strength. You know, it's his self-confidence. Yeah. Cause he, you know, he, he does you know, lack that um, self-confidence. Sometimes you hear it on the radio and, you know, he just needs everything to be the right way for him. Um, but as you say, you know, when Bottas does get it hooked up, he can have, you know, a fantastic weekend and can be unbeatable. Mm-hmm. Um, and clearly the Mercedes hasn't been the dominant car this year. Um, so yeah, again, it all goes to show, how you know the driver and you know the team effort in terms of race strategy and working you know the bigger picture out um brings championships and that's really the maturity we've seen in both hamilton and the mercedes team this year because last year we often saw them with a more dominant car throw away race wins from bad strategy and this year we've not seen that quite so much the team's been much more consistent much more on it strategically and um you know, um, working with with Hamilton with the tyres to um, to get that win in when actually most of us were calculating that it was going to be a disaster for them. But they, you know, they they know what they've got and it, it works for them more often than not at the weekends. And um, you know, another double championship win for for Mercedes, which is really depressing from mm-hmm. a Ferrari point of view. Very much so. Right, let's do some top threes. I've got. Um... Dan's and Sean's here. One day Dan they sent theirs in earlier. Dan has gone for a Verstappen win, Bottas second, and Hamilton third. Okay. Sean has slightly different a Verstappen win, Bottas second, Leclerc third. And let me just find the guest prediction that we got sent in because we have a guest predictor every week. And this is the F1 debate show. You can find them on YouTube. Um, they've gone for a Verstappen win, Hamilton second, Bottas third. Now it's our turn. And, right. Craig, and Craig, we're including you in this one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, you guys can go first. <laughs> I, it's hard to argue, isn't it, with a Verstappen win, to be perfectly honest. I mean, he was performing so well last year. He did well there the year before. And in the wet in 2016, I think it was, that great drive where... You know, he drove around the outside of Rosberg. The save. Yeah, and the and the that, that save. save. Yeah, yeah. I can argue with it because I need to make points up. 
So I think a Verstappen, a Verstappen win for me. Um, uh, I will say a Hamilton second. Verstappen win, Hamilton second, and Albon third. I don't think it's. I don't think it's beyond the realms of possibility at all. Mm. I'm going to go a Hamilton win, yep. Albon second, and Verstappen third. Mm, okay. Right. Okay. Uh, I. I'm going for a Verstappen win, and my autocorrect on my phone has decided that I'm going for a Bernard win. I don't know who Bernard is. <laughs> Verstappen yeah. autocorrects to Bernard. Ber- Bernard was the one that used to win every race. <laughs> Eric Bernard. <laughs> uh, let me think. I think Doug Hal Ferrari out in this I'm going to go for Vettel second and Hamilton third right uh, one more to go right okay well uh, yeah I mean I think yeah odds on money let's go with a Verstappen win I think if Verstappen wins then that's because the Red Bull's been really good and the Mercedes hasn't so I don't think we'd get a Merck in second so I'd say probably Vettel second and then Bottas third. Right. They are entered. I don't know if someone's got, if someone's has got that, but that's yeah, that's my, my punt for that. Yeah. Right. They, they are third. entered in. I'll put those put those on the website and the points are available for uh, the weekend. We'll we'll see how it goes. Well if it's if it if it's changeable conditions that goes out the window completely completely don't forget if you want to uh, if you're listening and you want to take part in the predictions go to threelegspoorwheels.com look on the game section and look for 2019 Grand Prix Prediction League put in your top three and you also get to put in your poll and fastest lap and you've got till five minutes before Q1 starts on Saturday I'll be doing the I'll be doing the Q one blog uh, the Q one all three qualifying sessions blog. You're just going to block Q one. <laughs> well, I've, <laughs> I've got a gig Saturday night, so I've got to make a quick escape. So I might just leave it, leave everyone hanging after uh, Q one's finished. I will do all of qualifying. Fair enough. And uh, we'll be doing the live blog as usual Sunday evening for the race. Yes, well, we Sunday will. Sunday evening UK time. Yes. Is there Brazilian food for blogging this time? I, I don't know. We'll have to find some Brazilian recipes. We've done burgers and tacos the last two races, so I'm, yep. guess, I'm guessing we're going to have to. If anyone knows any Brazilian recipes, can you drop us a tweet at Three Legs Ball Wheels and tell us what the, what the hell to cook? Uh, it really is just barbecued red meat. I yeah, mean, uh, yeah, that literally is. <laughs> Chicken hearts I had at a Brazilian restaurant once. I mean, that, 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 that's my experience of being in Brazil. So uh, it would be, it'd be a shame to go off piece <laughs> off, um, off on anything other than that. I mean, the, the last Brazilian restaurant I went to, it was one of those where they just br- keep bringing you meat until that's Brazil. you ask them to stop. <laughs> and I am not... Yeah, I mean, that, that's it. <laughs> I am not getting 20 different kinds of meeting for this Saturday. <laughs> if you do, I might come and do this blog. <laughs> your, reac- your reaction when we walked into that restaurant in Birmingham was like, they'll nev- they won't do anything like that. Oh my God, they're just bringing me meat. <laughs> yeah. I went to one of those and that's where I got, I got what, what, what are these? These are pan fried chicken hearts. Yeah, go on then. Why not? <laughs> um, right, probably not got time for Turtle Shunt tonight because... Um, we are running late and we have kept uh, Scarbs on quite a bit. Thank you very much for joining us, Craig. It is always a great show when you're on. No, always good fun. Thank you very much, everyone. I really enjoy it. And um, yeah, we'll um, be able to catch up on perhaps over the winter before the uh, the new season starts. That, that would be fantastic. It would be. Yeah, if you're on YouTube, stick around. We'll be doing the usual Q&A. Craig, you're more than welcome to join us as well for the uh, Q&A with the listeners. 
that we did. We do mm-hmm. about 10, 15 minutes at the end of the show. Um, if you want to get in touch, then tweet us at Three Legs Four Wheels. Um, we're on Facebook and Instagram at Three Legs Four Wheels as well. And individually, we are. I'm at a total shunt. At Flood21. At Pablo100. Dan is at Dan Dankleton. And Sean is at Sean Cowper. And of course, Craig, you are on Twitter. At, at Scarbs Tech. And uh, right, that's about it. We will uh, we will see you next week. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye. Thanks, Dan.